Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Well, let's begin our time by going to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be the people of God, to herald your praises, recognizing that you sent forth your Son, the Lord Jesus, to live the life we could never live, to die the death we deserve, and to raise from the dead that we might be brought to God, and that every advent until you return that we could sing your praises and we can sing that glory truly is to be brought to the newborn king. Father, we pray for our time this morning that we would see that your son is the king, that he has been the one who's proclaimed, that he's the one who has obeyed, and he is the one who commands us to go. So God, may we be those who are desirous to be on mission for your kingdom purposes. And we pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, I'm wondering if you're familiar with the name Simone Moreau. Moreau's considered the most accomplished search and rescue helicopter pilot in the world. In fact, his specialty has been search and rescue missions in the Himalayas for over two decades. For example, in 2012, he carried out a rescue on one of the highest peaks in the Himalayas. That one particular peak was just shy of 21,000 feet high. Now, not only that, but he's received many awards for his work. For instance, he's received the Pierre de Coubertin Fair Play Trophy, the David A. Souls Award, and the gold medal for civilian valor from the President of the Italian Republic for the dangerous rescues he's undergone. Namely, one particular rescue, which took place at just 28,000 feet with no oxygen support. That rescue, he did all alone. And oh, by the way, he did it in the dark. So the truth is, there's no comparison to Simone Moreau's heroic accomplishments. He's trained, he's experienced, and he's superior to any one of his peers. And yet this morning, we come together to encounter a far greater search and rescue specialist. And yet, the greatest search and rescue mission in all of human history. Because what we find in Jesus' incarnation is a search and save mission. So we get to marvel this morning at the great mission of God to seek and save lost people from the wrath of God. He's a searching and saving God. He's a God on a mission. He's not passive or indecisive. He's never coasting. No, this king is tenaciously sending, tenaciously searching, and tenaciously saving. And what's the nature of this mission? Well, it's rooted in Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom, his faithful obedience to the Father, and his command for all followers to partake in that same very mission for his name's sake. And so with that all said, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. We're going to start in verse, uh, verse 12 and following. <clears throat> So if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find our passage on page 808. And while you turn there, feel free to look at your outline and you'll notice that we have three main points this morning. Number one, the king proclaims. Number two, the king obeys. And number three, the king commands. 
Now it's helpful to remember that for roughly 500 years leading up to Jesus' birth, God was silent. He was silent. And suddenly, wondrous prophecies are fulfilled. There's a star shining in the night and angels are declaring that the king has arrived. And we know this to be true because the entire book of Matthew tells us that Jesus is the king. And this king, he's on a mission. And so the nature of this mission is displayed in what he proclaims. Just look with me at Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. It says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and a shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the Lord Jesus heads to Galilee... And he fulfills prophecy, which is found in Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 16 tells us that for those dwelling in the region and in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now a light has dawned in Galilee. Why? Well, because Jesus, the light of the world, shines in the darkness, in Galilee. But listen to what Jesus pronounces in verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now there are two things that he announces for us all to hear. One directly and one implicitly. Number one, the kingdom. And number two, the king. So first, number one, the kingdom. If you just look with me at verse 17 again, Jesus urgently exclaims to repent, to turn entirely from their disobedient ways. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now just pause here with me for a moment. I mean, this may not seem like an unbelievable claim to us this morning, but for Matthew's Jewish audience, there couldn't be any greater of a claim because they've awaited this specific kingdom their entire lives. And not only their lives, but their fathers and their father's father's lives. And so this is what God promised to the people of Israel. Right? Just think of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Right? It says there, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Not only that, but Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And behold, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. And to him, this king, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Right? And so after 500 years of complete silence, a people overtaken and oppressed by enemies and marred by sin, they hear the pronouncement of the eternal kingdom. And so the promised kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how can the kingdom be here? Well, the kingdom is here 
because the king is here. The kingdom is here because the king has come. And so Jesus pronounces not only the coming of the kingdom, but number two, the coming of the king. And so as we look at verse 17, it's like those old newspaper vendors from the 1800s, right? When the arrival of big news came, the vendors would shout aloud in the streets, extra, extra, read all about it. The pronouncement was made. Something important had happened and everyone must hear it and read it aloud. And you see, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is the great heralder of the kingdom, And in this case, the king ushers in the kingdom by his own authoritative pronouncement. And so Jesus pronounces the kingdom's at hand, therefore the king is at hand. And so then Jesus' ministry is set in motion, which is exactly what we see later on in verses 23 through 25. Matthew actually encapsulates for us the work of Jesus' ministry, which is found in teaching and in preaching and in healing. Just look with me. At verses 23 and 25, Matthew writes, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Of what? Of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted by various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now look at how Matthew articulates Jesus' ministry here. And, And he purposefully highlights the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom. Just like we saw in his pronouncement and how he willingly heals every single disease. But notice... At the very heart of the mission is the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. And what's the result? Verses 24 and 25, we see it. His fame spreads. Now, is this the only time Matthew mentions a summary of Jesus' ministry? No. In fact, we have bookends here. So we first see it in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, and then it closes in Matthew 9, verses 35 through 36, which say, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, hear it, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What's the result? When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So we have almost identical verses that highlight the very same reality. Jesus proclaims and Jesus heals. And so what we see here is God's great plan throughout all of human history has come to fruition. The Messiah that was promised has come and this king he proclaims. And so God sends the promised Messiah as the great proclaimer of the promised kingdom. And that proclamation is not just seen in Matthew chapter 4, but it's highlighted throughout the entire book of Matthew. I mean, just even think of it, right? We just saw it in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus gives this sermon and he proclaims the descriptions of his kingdom people who are marked, mirroring the king who is the one who reigns over the kingdom. And later in the book, right, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, 
Later in that same chapter, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. He is proclaiming the kingdom of heaven to the people. And so what's the upshot of all of these statements? Well, in teaching about the kingdom, Jesus teaches about the king himself. And so Jesus' desire is that the king, that he'd be treasured. He's the great price. He's the great pearl of great price. He's the treasure in the field. So in all of these instances that we see in this very portion of Matthew, we see that yes, the kingdom has come. But yes, the king is the one who proclaims. And he is to be known and he is to be enjoyed. So King Jesus proclaims the kingdom. But not only does Jesus faithfully proclaim but he faithfully obeys his heavenly father. Number two, the king obeys. And so if you will, just look back with me at the beginning of Matthew chapter four. And so we're gonna be looking in those first 11 verses. But I want us to just think for a moment. When we think about kings throughout history, we don't think of obedience being a significant part of their reign, do we? No, at least I typically don't think of that. I typically think of power-hungry men, fancy crowns, valiant leaders pulling swords out of stones, right? But we don't usually think of obedience, at least not as a significant part of a king's reign, do we? However, in the Bible, God's kings are students of God's law. They're to have a much higher standard than typical earthly kings. And why is that? Well, it's because God's king is God's man. God's king is God's man. And so these are men after God's own heart, these kings. They're those who have learned the word, who love the word, and live the word. And so they're obedient to their father in heaven. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, God says that the king is one whose heart is not ruled by the world or the things in it, but rather he's ruled by God and his word. And what does that look like? Well, the king is actually called, commanded to write for themselves the book of the covenant and then meditate on it day and night. Right, which should instantly start reminding us of other portions of scripture. Psalm 1-2 Why? Because Psalm 1 speaks of God's king, saying that the king's delight is in what? Its delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. And so a true king is a king obedient to God's commands. And this reality that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 17 fully personifies exactly what's found in the Lord Jesus, which is what we see in both A, his life, and B, in his death. And so let's read together Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and see just how the Lord Jesus obeys, specifically in the context of temptation. So number one, he endures temptation. So Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, 
throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now verse 1 says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice, by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so the reason that Jesus was led into the wilderness, it says, is to be tempted by the devil. Which highlights that there's a purpose for these temptations in the wilderness. They aren't by chance. Jesus wasn't unlucky. No, so this 40-day trek in the wilderness was designed by the Father so that Jesus would be tempted in order to demonstrate perfect obedience in the face of the onslaught of Satan's temptations. Because that's when you learn if you're truly obedient. When you've actually been put under the most significant of temptations. Which is what we find in verses 3 through 9. Right? So in verses 3, verses 5 and 6, and 8 and 9, come three different and specific temptations. Right? In verse 3, you'll remember Satan calls for Jesus to turn those stones into loaves of bread. And he's doing this in order to appease his hunger. Then we have in verses 5 and 6, Satan calls Jesus to just throw himself down off the peak of the temple to call into question the protection of God on his man. And lastly, verses 8 and 9, right? Satan entices Jesus to fall down and worship him, right? In order to gain his rightful kingdom through the wrong means. So after every one of these temptations, Jesus doesn't have a moment of weakness. Jesus doesn't have a moment in time in which he goes, "Ah, this is looking good. He says more than just no, doesn't he? Yes, the king actually argues from the word of God. Just hear all the, the ways in which Jesus replies. Each defense is flowing from the Old Testament. And we know that to be true because every single time, what does he say? It is written. But she's saying, it's coming from somewhere else. This isn't just me speaking here. This is the word of God. Right? Verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 7. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 10. Be gone, Satan. Why? Because it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then what happens? Satan's gone. The devil left him, and the angels come and minister to him. So catch this with me. King Jesus perfectly obeys God's commands rather than giving in to the temptations of the evil one. He never gives in, not even a blink, not even a wishful thought. He never leans into the temptation. He never dabbles with the devil. No, he stands firm. On the word of God, he holds fast to his father's instructions and he obeys as a godly king must. So what we have here 
is that Jesus' mission is one of perfect obedience. Now here's the question I've been asking myself this week. How about us? Do we follow the example of King Jesus when temptations come? Or do we play the weighing game? You know what I mean? When we have sin here and the the way in which we must flee here and we're weighing the options, man, Jesus promises this, but man, this looks good. Are we doing the weighing game? Are we dabbling with the devil? Are we leaning into that which tempts us to despair? Are we tethered to our temptations? Or do you entrust yourself to your maker who overwhelmingly provides goodness and mercy for all of your days? Jesus demonstrates his faithful obedience as the king and we see it as he endures temptation. But not only that, we also see it as number two, he heals the sick. And so turn with me forward to Matthew chapter eight. And I just want us to look at one specific section in which he heals the sick and it highlights his faithful obedience as the king. So Matthew chapter eight, and we'll start in verse 14. Matthew writes, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Right, so in this particular account, Jesus enters his friend Peter's home, and Peter's mother-in-law is lying there ill with a fever, and this is an intense and deadly illness. So this isn't a matter of just popping a couple of Tylenol and you're good to go. No, this fever means death. It's a terrifying and, and scary event. And what does Jesus do? He touches her hand and instantly the fever was gone to the point that she gets up and she starts serving up the meals. That's a pretty great mother-in-law, right? And so they're here. There are two thoughts worth mentioning. Number one, Jesus touched a woman's hand. And number two, Jesus touched a woman with a fever. So we just got to put on our, our Jewish kind of brain here, right? A Jew during this time would have been shocked by what Jesus does. It would have been unheard of and completely forbidden. Men didn't touch women other than their own spouses, and they would have never touched anyone with a fever because you would be instantly deemed unclean. But Jesus does the unbelievable here. He heals the woman of her fever by touching her, and guess what? Jesus does not experience any disease, and there is no impurity in him. But look how the narrative continues here. Verse 16. That evening, right after all this had happened, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. 
Verse 17 is the key. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Right, so all the sick came to him, and every single one that came to him, according to the text, all were healed. But why? Verse 17, he healed the sick in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases, which comes straight from Isaiah 53, right? Which tells us of the promised suffering servant, but we must be clear, Isaiah is highlighting not just any sufferer, but he speaks of the king to come. This is the Messiah who is going to be the suffering servant. The one who would bear the reproach on behalf of his people. The one who would take upon himself the iniquities of us all, and by his wounds we would be healed. This is the rightful job, and the only job, for the proper king of God's people. That's the Messiah. And so how does this fulfillment of prophecy demonstrate Jesus' obedience to the Father? Well, what we see is he's faithful to God and his word. And he comes not to just heal for healing's sake, but to fulfill the scriptures demonstrating that he is the rightful king they've been waiting for to deal with the curse of sin. And so in all of Jesus' healings, they are purposed to physically reverse the curse of sin but then it actually points us forward to the greater spiritual reversal of the curse of sin by the death on the cross. And so why is this all important? Why do we even turn to this particular text? Well, I think it's just very helpful for us to think about this for a moment. What if Jesus didn't fulfill what was promised here? What if he didn't fulfill it? well, then he wouldn't be the long-awaited Messiah because it's been promised hundreds of years back. This is what the king is going to do. And if he can't do that and won't do it, he isn't the king that's been promised. And so Jesus would just be a phony king with a phony kingdom. All the stuff he said in, Ma in Matthew chapter 4 would be a joke. He wouldn't have real power and would have no ability to live the life we can never live and be made an adequate substitute to save us from our sins. And so he had to be obedient in fulfilling what was promised. And so what we see in Matthew 8 is the glorious declaration that Jesus is the real deal. He's the real king. His obedience has been tested and he stands approved. And so where we fail, the king fails not. Jesus is the king of kings. And so what we see in these two texts is that Christ was obedient in his life. But I also want us to see this morning that he was most certainly obedient in his death. Which is exactly what we're told in Philippians chapter 2. Right in verse 8, the writer tells us, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so I want us to see that this morning. So we're going to look at B, his obedience in his death. So let's turn to the end of the book, Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, because I want us to see just how he was obedient in his death. I want to remind us that the purpose of Jesus' mission 
has already been announced in Matthew 1, right? Why did Jesus come to dwell among us? What's the mission of the God-man? Well, Matthew 1:21 had told us and tells us, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, right? So there it is. Right at the beginning of Matthew, he's going to save his people from their sins. It's straight from the angel's mouth. Jesus is his name. Why? Because King Jesus will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. He came to seek and to save the lost. And he was obedient to the point of death. Right? Leading up to this account, as we see it in Matthew chapter 27, right? we're told that there's mockery below him on the cross. There's mockery beside him. But in addition, Matthew writes of the wrath of God that Jesus bore in the place of his people. Just look with me at Matthew 27, starting in verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemeth sabathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now I want us for a moment to just feel the weight of these verses. For three hours, darkness fell over all the land, and Jesus endured the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And Matthew tells us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Anguish. Wrath of God fully poured out in the place of sinners. You know, a pastor once told me the story of his son, one who had a chronic illness to the point that his skin would crack, his skin would bleed, pain unimaginable, and this would all take place in the middle of the night. And this boy would get out of his bed and go to his parents' door, and the door would be shut, locked, and the son would wake up and wail in front of this door, pleading, please, mommy, open the door. And the, and the door would open up and they would console their son, take care of him. They'd love him, care. But what we see here in Matthew chapter 27 is that this particular door will not open. It will not be open. Just as Romans 8.32 so beautifully explains for us, he didn't spare his son, but gave him willingly up for us all. And so the wailing and the agony were relentless for three hours. Horrific, unimaginable, and yet absolutely necessary for the debt to be paid in full. And all the while, the king on the cross obediently endures it. We have an obedient king like no other because that's the nature of his mission. The king came to serve and not to be served. And so he willingly and joyfully endures the wrath of God for his people. And verse 50 tells us, 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Don't miss it this morning. He gave up his spirit. Meaning he wasn't killed. Instead, he freely yielded his life in obedience to the Father's will, which was God's prerogative. Because this is how Jesus saves. Jesus had to die. And in his death, he's obedient to his Father, willingly giving up his spirit so he truly can save his people from their sins. I can't help but think of it this morning. The beautiful lyrics... How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Matchless that the king promised, faithfully obeys and endures the wrath of God that sinners like you and me deserve. And all of this was accomplished for the glory of the Father and for the eternal good of all who put their faith and trust in him. Do you hear what I'm saying? The king of kings, the prize of all creation, lived, died, and rose that we might have eternal life in right relationship with him for all eternity, freed completely and forever from all our sins. Right? This king came on a mission to seek and to save the lost, broken sinners just like me and you. And this morning, if you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as king of your life, as your greatest treasure, then I want to be so clear this morning. You must turn from your sin. You must trust in the king of kings. He is the king. And this king has come on a mission to seek and to save. But one day, this king will come back to judge. Oh, he is a king that must not be trifled with. He will judge and he will judge rightly. And so all who do not put their faith in him will die without the promise of peace, without justice or lasting joy. And so I appeal to you, even today, Christmas Day, to know and to enjoy the one who has come and will come again. So the nature of King Jesus' ministry is wrapped up in proclamation. But as we've seen, it's also wrapped in obedience to the Father. But as King, the Lord Jesus is given all authority to summon his people to partake in his very ministry to seek and to save the lost. This was the case for his disciples. And this is the command that the Lord Jesus has called us to do. And so this is what we see in number three, the king commands. So just turn with me over to Matthew chapter 28. Right, and at this point in the narrative, as we've just seen, Jesus has been crucified. He gives up his spirit. And then he's risen from the dead on the third day. And now he stands in the narrative before his 11 disciples and he declares what is seen in verse 16. Just look with me. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Jesus says, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So first, A, authority given. What we see in verse 18 actually details the authority that's given by the Father to King Jesus, right? Jesus begins by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, just notice this with me. Jesus doesn't say, some authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. No, all authority in heaven and on earth, every single bit of authority is mine. Right? So what he's saying is, I'm the king, everyone. I'm the king. And if we didn't catch it in chapters 1 through 4 of the book, Jesus plainly tells us himself, he's the king who has authority over all things. Absolutely everything. And so this is the proper acknowledgement of Jesus' position as the sovereign king over the entire universe. Which means every molecule... Every molecule, every livestock, every sea urchin, every speck of dust, every grain of sand, and every single human being, whether they'd like to admit it or not, is under the authority of King Jesus. All of them. In fact, the language Matthew uses here alludes to a verse that we've heard already in our sermon this morning. Right? Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. One like a son of man who is given authority. Oh, glory, sovereign power. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. So just look at what is brought together here at the end of Matthew 28. This is the king. He has power, glory, authority, and sovereign power. This is his dominion. He has it, and it's everlasting. It's never passing away. This is the king. He sits on his throne, and he will forevermore. This is the king. And so don't miss it. Because the Lord Jesus has been given all authority under heaven and earth by God the Father himself, then Jesus has the divine right. He has the divine right to summon his disciples both then and now to partake in his mission. He has the right to do it. And the purpose that his people herald the good news that many would come to know the king as Lord and Savior. And so I want us to see this with B. The command is given. That command is given to all of his disciples. Just look with me at verses 18 and 19. Jesus declares, right, on the basis of, I have authority, here's my command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now just look at verse 18. How does that begin? Therefore, right? Go therefore. So because Jesus has authority, therefore, here's the command for us. Go. Go. Go and make, nation, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the te- and teaching them. And teaching them what? Well, they're taught to observe 
all that the king has commanded. All right, so this command is all about making the king known. Spreading his fame throughout all the ends of the earth. This is straight from the king's mouth. The rescued become a part of the rescue mission. The rescued become a part of the rescue mission. And so Jesus calls his people to partake in kingdom work. To be on mission for his name's sake. And in the ways that the Lord Jesus tenaciously sends, searches, and saves, we too are commanded to go, to search, to proclaim the good news of the gospel that the nations might be glad as we sung. You see, Jesus doesn't save his people so that they can just coast through life with their minds at ease, with their fire insurance in their back pocket, just kicking their feet up because they've been saved from eternal judgment. Now that is true. Yes, praise God. He has saved us from the wrath of God. But he has not saved us for the purpose that we coast through life without problem or risk. No, he has saved us and now calls us to go as his people. So if we've seen the mission of the king in the book of Matthew, and if we are partakers in that very mission, then here's a question for us. What does it look like for us to be faithful to the king's command? Well, I think there are two specific ways in which we can be thinking about this from our text this morning. Number one, we go together. And number two, we proclaim together. So number one, we go together. Right? The king is clear. We must go and we must make disciples. But that's a very difficult thing to do. It calls for deep earnestness for souls and a passion for the glory of God, recognizing that you're not the one who does the work, but it is God himself who does it through his people. And yet, even with all those burdens and passions, right, the desire for souls to be saved and the passion for God's glory to be known and treasured, well, there's a temptation to just sit at home. There's a temptation to just sit on the sidelines. There's a desire sometimes to not speak. But that's not the instruction from the king. Right? Jesus has no category for commentary such as, I don't have the gift of evangelism. He, he doesn't have a category for, I'm just not a social butterfly. I don't really like to talk to people. He doesn't have that either. It, there's no even category of, I don't have the energy to start new and awkward conversations. No, there are no caveats with the king. The one who has all authority says, go. And so as the one who has all authority, my goodness, we're commanded to listen, and not just listen, but to obey, to act, to be on mission as the people of the king. And so then how do we go when it's hard, when it's terrifying, and when we're out of our comfort zone? Well, I think one of the most helpful ways to be bold, to obey, and go, is to go and obey and be bold with friends. So I want to encourage us. Go look around, find members in this church and go and make him known in whatever way possible. Go into towns, in restaurants, Bible studies, think through areas of influence that you may have, and go with your friends and make him known there. 
incremental gospel conversation, stirring up thought in order that you may have an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with all who might hear it. Engage. Go into the towns and communities for the sake of the gospel with great zeal and faithful friends. And with the very aim to number two, proclaim the gospel together. So number two, proclaim it. Right? Romans 10, 17 is abundantly clear for us. Paul writes, faith comes from hearing. And hearing through what? Through the word of Christ, the gospel. So here's the reality, point blank. We are proclaimers as his disciples. That's what we're called to do because it's through the heralding of the gospel, the word of Christ, that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to sing good tunes about the nations being glad. We must go and proclaim. This is how God established the mission to go forth. So then we must corporately, together, proclaim the good news. This isn't a solo operation that we've been called to. It's a mission for all of God's followers to be about. And so in order to do this difficult work, we need to be prepared to proclaim. We must steep ourselves deeply in the gospel. You can't proclaim with joy what you don't find worthy to be meditated on daily. And so the more that we soak on the gospel that saved us, our hearts are stirred with a greater passion to share what we have seen and heard and through the Christ's accomplishment. Right? Just as we heard Garrett last week, true worship of the king always leads to joyful proclamation. And so the more we see the glory of the gospel that did a work in our dead hearts, it makes us more expectant that God can and will do that same work in those that we minister the gospel to. So are we a people that are being steeped in the glory of the gospel? Are we recounting afresh the glories of God's work to save you and then call us all to make him known? Have your taste buds to the sweetness of the gospel grown sour? The question I must ask in return to that is how is that even possible? I don't think it is. Be steeped in the gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, during Christmas this year, we must recall the good news of the king, worship and adore the king, and make much of him in our lives, in our conversations, and in our relationships. We actually have the great honor of remembering that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost today, to remember his first advent that he's come. And the great, awesome privilege that we have that every single Advent, now on, we wait and we look forward to the time when he comes again. And so as we wait, we get to see the nature of his mission and the one that we've called to. The nature of his mission to proclaim the kingdom, to obey the Father and the command to send us all, his disciples, on mission. On mission. But don't forget that as we go and as we proclaim, oh, there is such great hope for us in Matthew 28. Such hope. Because the king himself tells us at the end of verse 20, 
he shows us some of the most encouraging and humbling words ever imaginable, right? He says in verse 20, I'm with you to the end of the age. Do you hear that? We must go and proclaim. But as we do, we're not left to our own devices. No, the king is with his people. He promises to be with us to the end, to strengthen us, to stir us, and to cause the growth, which gives us all the more confidence and boldness and tenacity to be poured out and faithful to the mission that he so graciously entrusted us with. The king is with us as our advocate. He's working in us as we go and make him known. And the king reigns above us as we look to make him known. May we be a people who obey the king's commands and diligently make disciples throughout the world by going and by proclaiming as the people of God for his name's sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the king. We thank you for the one who was born in Bethlehem and now is the king of glory. And God, we pray that we would be faithful men and women, faithful disciples who hear the call of the kingdom, who hear the command of the king, and we go. We make disciples. We teach them all that, that we've been commanded, that they would make you known, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be treasured, and that the nations will be glad forever and ever. Father, we pray that you give us the grace that we would be faithful, that we'd make much of you, and we'd do it with great, great joy. And so we pray all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.